When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. Welcome to Beyond the Scenes, the podcast that goes deeper into segments and topics that aired on The Daily Show with Trevor Noah. This week, we're bringing back episodes about our favorite topic, racism. (laughs) To start off, I want to share a clip from How Racist is Boston? Like all episodes of Beyond the Scenes, this clip came from a segment that originally aired on the show. Myself and former Daily Show producer CJ Hunt took a trip up to Boston to see how local Bostonians see themselves versus the national reputation that the city has. CJ also took us through his experience pitching what was one of his first segment ideas to Trevor Noah. Take a listen. How are you doing, brother? Uh, Boston original. Uh, were you born and raised in Boston? Uh, how long were you there? I was born in Worcester, uh, and then uh, I was raised for for a while in Boston. I still can't pronounce that word, Worcester. Worcestershire. 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 Yeah, that's that's exactly it. That sauce tastes like me trying to pronounce it. So we haven't had many field producers on the show yet because y'all are always out doing stuff in the field and it's it's an interesting job because you know as a field producer you all are kind of helping to put all the pieces together the visuals the writers kind of hand you an idea you all help to kind of craft what the concept will be as well and then you're out the door with the cameras trying to figure this out i guess first thing i'll ask you out the gate um i know this piece wasn't my idea Because I know as a black person, I would have never pitched, hey, let me go to Boston as a black man and ask everybody if it's racist or not. So how did this piece all come about? Also, not my idea Uh, as a black man (laughs) who looks like a Mexican man. um, I who was grew up in Boston. I know how racist it is. This isn't this isn't a question. A lot of black folks are asking, you know, numerically, how racist is it? It's just, it it is more an intuitive piece of knowledge. But I think that question came to the piece because um, this was actually my first piece on the show. It was the spring of 2018. Um, You know, I had just met you. You were the first person I met on the show. And they were like, okay, how would you like to go out with Roy? Here's a piece we have cooking. The piece originally was about Michael Che. You know, he had been, he had said on SNL, you know, I'm like the... Patriots were versus the Falcons for the Super Bowl. And Michael Che was like, hey, I'm excited to see the blackest city beat the most racist city I've ever been to. So the piece originally was supposed to be about how 
Bostonians felt about Michael Che shitting on their city. Oh, he's always taking shots at them, and they're always mad at Che. Yeah, they're always mad at Che. And yeah, it's it's his Staten Island, I guess. So it was uh, it was about that, and um, also they were changing the name of Yaki Way, which was you know named after a, a Red Sox uh, manager who you know kept them from integrating. So originally the piece was supposed to be about that, and then very quickly in pitching to Trevor, he was like, "Nah, y'all gotta y'all gotta change the question." It's one of those pieces that I enjoy because we go out the door with a single question we're attempting to ascertain we're simply trying to find out how racist is it and so we oh here's a little uh beyond the scene you want to go beyond the scenes motherfucker bring them on um we shot all of this in one day which isn't (laughs) the norm but when we started putting the day together it kind of made sense and so i i remember you know we went over we went over to roxbury um, in in Boston, the black side of town, if you don't know. And we spoke with black people over there. Then we went over to the Boston Globe and we spoke with some of the NAACP people. And then we went over to Fenway to start doing Man on the Street and just kind of talking to laymen, um, you know, that were out and about. The thing that was so visible to me right away by the end of the day was just how oblivious some people were to what's going on. I, I, I distinctly remember us asking one person, you know, is there racism? She goes, well, I've never seen it. I don't see that racism myself, honestly. No, I don't think Boston's a racist city. I don't think Boston is a racist city at all. So how do you know? Yeah. I don't feel it. As if that's the only way it can be confirmed is you must see it and experience, or you must witness a black person getting kicked out of a store, the cops beating his ass, to believe that it's real. And I, I thought that that was kind of disheartening in a way. Um, why why do you think Boston has this reputation as a racist it's the, city? It's also the best part of the piece to me. You know, you, you ask that old couple, you know, this old white couple outside of Fenway, do you think Boston is a racist city? And what I love about watching you work is the questions are so basic. You know, you're just asking person after person, you know, like, do you think it deserves this rep? And they say, you know, I don't think Boston is a racist city. I, I don't see, I don't see it. I've never felt it. And the idea is like, when would you have felt it, <laughs> sir and ma'am? <laughs> you know, you, you like seventy-year-old white people. When would someone have been racist to you? So, but, but I do think that that's, you know, this was two thousand eighteen. That's how people then, and some people still now think about racism. It's like. You know, if someone's not shouting the N-word at me or I don't see it happen on a train, that's the only type of racism that can exist. So I love that. That's the part of the piece. People comment most about it in the comments about, damn, when this this couple says this thing. And I think, you know, most Bostonian, most white Bostonians and most white people in America, I think, still think if I don't feel it personally, then it doesn't exist. You being from that area, right? Clearly, you felt it growing up as a black looking Mexican man, (laughs) as a Mexican looking black, as a as a Filipino Negro. Yeah. As a Filipino (laughs) Latinx black man looking man. How did it feel? Because you could feel that and you know, that's real. And then to be able to come back home with a camera and a correspondent and security, lots of security. We always roll security. Run up if you want. Shout out Get to security. Get your ass beat. Um, Shout out to security yelling, who wants this? Um, that fe- <laughs> uh, I, 
<laughs> we had a real confrontational security guard. <laughs> You're asking questions in the background. You hear security. Try it. Try it. Come on. Come on. <laughs> uh, I, okay. I don't want to say it felt like vengeance, but it felt vindicating to come back to Boston and then in a place I grew up, you know, asking this question with a camera because... You know, I think white Bostonians who I know, some of their reaction was, oh man, are you really gonna do that? Come on, like, give us a break. But black Bostonians I know and who grew up with were like, yeah, okay, finally. You know, like, I don't think, I don't think there are a lot of black Bostonians who react to the reputation like, oh my God, I don't know why the media's hung up on this. Are we asking this question again? It's more just like, yeah, we, we already know that, you know? Like, I grew up, real bougie. I grew up in boarding schools because my parents were like, uh, get out of the house. Um, but you know, that the type of racism there was not like walking through Southie at night type of racism. Like the racism there was okay. Everyone it's Friday. We have to have another meeting about who wrote the N word in the mirrors in the bathroom. Like that was a very <laughs> common, <laughs> the, the amount of meetings that we've had, I had in middle school and high school for who wrote the N word somewhere is is so high and then also the middle school i went to in the dorms people would just regularly use the word tar baby like don't be a tar baby about this thing so it's kind of like Jeez, you know Boston. bougie white people Oof. racism like my father's a massachusetts governor we are a lineage of captains type <laughs> type <laughs> Uh, yacht. Uh, like yes. yacht boat boat shoe racism. <laughs> yeah, it's a separate piece racism. A little bit Holden Caulfield style racism, Nantucket racism. <laughs> Describe to me a little bit of that process of as a first time field producer at that time, sitting down with Trevor and just going like, what was that like? Like throwing your ideas at Trevor and just going, hey man, this is what I think I want to do. Is it okay? Or was it look? I'm from there. The writing inward on the mirror. I know how to handle this. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. You remember the way we used to pitch in that big room, in the big conference room with Trevor? Yeah. Like we have since figured out at The Daily Show, like a much more efficient way about like, bro, here's a paragraph, you know, I'm gonna email it to you. Tell us what you like, and then we can talk about it. But there was a time <laughs> when all of the field producers and the whole field team would go into a conference room, you know, so like we're talking like 20, 20 plus people and sit in a conference room while Trevor's eating lunch. And we would just almost as if it was like a game show, like try to stand up and pitch our entire pieces to him. Um, and it, this was during that time. So I, I pulled up the original pitch uh, and I want to read a little bit of it to you. So it came to me and it was supposed to be, okay, this is going to be an antiques road show uh, about uh, all the racist sort of signage and things Boston still had. And that didn't make a whole lot of sense. So this is what I wrote. And imagine like sitting across from Trevor as he eats pasta and reading this from a page. Okay, this is called By the Numbers, How Racist is Boston? Here's the log line. Boston plans to change the name of Yaki Way, a street next to the stadium where the Red Sox play. The street is named after the racist team owner, Tom Yockey, a.k.a. the Robert E. Lee of baseball. The removal is a rare acknowledgement of Boston's racist past, but how racist is it these days? Roy Wood Jr. sets out to answer this question, not with anecdotes, but with the numbers as loud and as clear as Tom Yockey's thoughts on miscegenation. 
This is the first in By the Numbers, a special investigative wing of TDS that sets out to answer questions we never thought to count on. How fucked is the VA and how bad is Flint's water? Trevor? Like, it was me reading that whole thing. And imagine that for every field producer. It's like the most gut-wrenching. I don't even want to hear me read that now <laughs> and it's funny because it's not that trevor's not listening he's processing all of it and then he comes out on the other side and goes here's what you need just ask how racist is boston and then you're sitting there like whoa brilliant, <laughs> brilliant. you but, fixed the pitch uh, yeah and you're like so none of the so none of the other stuff but i think you know he he that is one of his great gifts he would sit there and listen to all of that paragraph that i just read and go what is the story and I'd go, well, I, well, I just read it, you know, the Robert E. Lee of baseball and the thing about um, Yaki and, you know, and he would just go, no, what, tell me in one sentence, what is this story about? And I think that that was a big education for being in those rooms of, oh, damn, yeah, like, why are we trying to impress you with all these jokes and all of these bits? Like, you just want to know the thing. And the thing that he boiled it down to for us was, okay, so Spotlight the ones who expose the Catholic church sex scandal, they're asking how racist is Boston? How do they measure that? And then that became the piece of, yo, how do you measure that? Hey, big thank you to me for going to Boston and having the courage. Also, thank you to the homie CJ Hunt. After the break, we rejoin with another clip from CJ where we started talking about critical race theory. It's beyond the scenes. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at lifelock.com slash news. That's lifelock.com slash news to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. Good sleep should come naturally. And with the new Natural Hybrid mattress, it can. A collaboration between award-winning mattress brand Lisa and home design favorite West Elm, the Natural Hybrid is the culmination of these two companies' shared values. Premium materials, meticulous craftsmanship, and sustainable practices. Made with natural latex, responsibly sourced natural wool, and environmentally safe foams, the Natural Hybrid elevates your sleep sanctuary. Indulge your senses and supports a greener tomorrow. Plus, when you purchase the natural hybrid, you're also helping fuel Lisa's work with shelters and those in need. Since 2015, Lisa has donated more than 40,000 mattresses to ensure children and families have a safe place to sleep. Don't put off a good night's sleep any longer. Get a Lisa mattress today for a sound sleep tonight. Visit lisa.com slash iHeart. That's l-e-e-s-a dot com slash iHeart. Welcome back. Now, 
Not only do we see racism in major cities, we also see it seeping into our education system. And my boy CJ is back again alongside leading scholar Professor Kimberly Crenshaw to discuss an episode titled The Battle Over Critical Race Theory. Roll that racism! Professor Crenshaw, how much bigger of a fight are you prepared for critical race theory to become in this country? That's it. That's a, okay. That's a great question. So I would be happy um, to turn this huge platform that they've put critical race theory on into a platform that advances what critical race theory is actually about, right? So now there's name recognition to critical race theory. We couldn't have bought that much media. With all the money in the world, we could not have bought it. Mm. So now the question is, since everyone has the container, everyone's heard of it, how do we use this moment to fill it with the information that people who practice critical race theory every day can say, oh yeah, I do that, I do that. So here's 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 a point. Critical race theory is practiced, I think, every time most black people go outside. Every time you see the, every time you, you see the <laughs> That's white exactly people, what they're so saying. True. They're like, it's happening when black people go outside. I know it. You, you're practicing you leave your house. Theory, you're like, okay, hands on the steering wheel, mm-hmm. pull over slowly. You have a theory about what may happen to you based on what has happened to millions of black people. You, you don't know for sure, you, but you have a theory. When you go into the store and someone's following you, you have a theory about what they're thinking. So we practice wow. critical race theory every day. I just want the opportunity for people to hear what it really is So they can say, oh, yeah, that's exactly the truth about what it means to be black in this society. I've traveled a half million road miles in my car. And anytime, and this is with Alabama tags, anytime Mm. I was outside the state of Alabama, I did not wear a hat in my like. Just the idea of passing a speed trap and a cop seeing me in a baseball hat, just thinking, oh yeah, thug time, let's mm-hmm. get him. Mm-hmm. Like, like we're past the seatbelt now. I'm seat- sitting up straight and tending to look at me, officer. I, wow, that's- And you are practicing critical race theory, right? I don't drive rental cars with out-of-state plates. Even when I fly and I get a rental car, I need a rental car that's registered for the state that I'm driving it in. I'm, no, you're not gonna, no. I yeah. love that grounding it in an emotion and being like, non-white people know this as an emotion, right? Like when we see a cop who killed an unarmed black man in broad daylight get off, we have a theory about why that happened. When we see, you know, white neo-Nazis storm the Capitol uh, to kill congressmen and they nothing happens. We have a theory as to something happening in the law and race that is making that happen. And I just love that you're naming it not as an invention, but as placing a name on something that we already intuitively know works about the world. And we know why it is so important for the other side to take the name away from us. Because if you can't conceptualize an experience, if you can't name an experience, you can't solve an experience. So, you know, this is consistent with what they've done to us 
throughout history, we weren't able to read. Right? It, was, it was against the law to be able to read. It was against the law to testify in court against white people. It, it's been against the law to agitate for abolition. So whenever there is capacity to name our experience, to transform it, that's been the key objective of retrenchment, to take that away. So yeah, we, we're fighting about the content of what we do. We're fighting to be able to name our experience. And of course, they're fighting not only to take away our ability to name our experience, but to vote, <laughs> to change our experience, to protest, uh, to, to object to our experience. These are all things that are happening by the same people, supported by the same money, and advanced by the same politicians. We need to connect these dots so that people know, you might have not heard of critical race theory, but you know critical race theory. It's the life that we're all living right now. I've encountered black folks who are like, well, you know, critical race theory is, you know, I, I don't want to be dividing people. And I use an analogy I've heard you say before about asbestos. <laughs> can you can you tell our listeners that analogy? I, this is what I go to all the time and people are like, oh, OK. <laughs> well, you know, we tell people if you really care about a social problem, the last thing you're going to do is try to penalize the people who have the expertise to tell you where the problem is. So let's take our institutions, for example, we built them with asbestos tucked in everywhere because that's just how we built things at the time. Well, it turns out asbestos is toxic. It kills people. So what's the solution you know, to the fact that we have asbestos in our institutions? Do we say, the solution to it is not to use the word asbestos, not to look for where asbestos <laughs> might be, not to use tools to try to remove asbestos, and now to even criminalize people who are teaching people where to find asbestos to remove this toxic. We That would be ridiculous. We would never think that makes any sense, but we think this, that exact thing about race. So the solution to racism don't talk about race, don't see race, don't teach people how to identify <laughs> racism, and penalize and criminalize those people who have that expertise. That's what we're doing when we say critical race theory, anti-racism is the problem, rather than it is the solution to that problem. I love that analogy because it's like, yeah, white supremacy is asbestos. It is built into all of the structures. Some of us have known that it has always been there and other people have just been going about their day. And then when you're like, hey, this is built into everything, they're like, how dare you? Do you not like this building? And we're like, no, the building's fine. I like living here. I just want to make sure it doesn't kill me. Right, exactly. So basically what you're saying is if there is a problem and it's detrimental, when it comes to race, it's important to speak up and say something. But when it comes to love and relationships, just don't bring it up at all because that's part of the past, right? It'll go away. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, I'll work that out later. Big thank you to Kimberly Crenshaw for breaking all that CRT stuff down for me and CJ. After the break, we're going to revisit a clip where I learned something about the freeways and racism. Beyond the scenes, we'll be right back. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. 
There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com iHeart. That's LifeLock.com iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. Good sleep should come naturally, and with the new Natural Hybrid mattress, it can. A collaboration between award-winning mattress brand Lisa and home design favorite West Elm, the Natural Hybrid is the culmination of these two companies' shared values, premium materials, meticulous craftsmanship, and sustainable practices. Made with natural latex, responsibly sourced natural wool, and environmentally safe foams, the Natural Hybrid elevates your sleep sanctuary in your senses and supports a greener tomorrow. Plus, when you purchase the natural hybrid, you're also helping fuel Lisa's work with shelters and those in need. Since 2015, Lisa has donated more than 40,000 mattresses to ensure children and families have a safe place to sleep. Don't put off a good night's sleep any longer. Get a Lisa mattress today for a sound sleep tonight. Visit lisa.com slash iHeart. That's l-e-e-s-a dot com slash iHeart. Hey, let's keep the racism party going and get into how racism has literally been built into our society. On the episode, How Racism is Built into America's Interstate Highways, Daily Show writer Randall Otis and ACLU president Deborah Archer talk about how city bus routes kept black people out of white areas and the dangers that arose once more black people started driving on their own. More racism, please. There's definitely hurdles as well with just the bus system now in the present day. So so growing up, I remember I had a car in high school, but it was a very shoddy car. And, you know, every month it was down for two months type of car. And so something as simple as going to the mall, which in Birmingham, the mall is a sojourn from the west side all the way. Like it's two buses and a connection. And the bus on the weekend, the last bus from the white mall from the Galleria was at 630. The mall don't close till nine. So even trying to get a job when I had a car, I had to think about the bus route and the time it would take. And can I get the last? But but for whatever reason, on the black side of town, you could get a bus as late as seven or eight, which was for Birmingham terms. That was a very, very late bus. But like just the way the buses were scheduled, they were scheduled in such a way that if you're going to come out here and shop, you're going to come during the day. You're going to come crack a dawn and you're going to take your butt home. But you can forget right. about working out there because you can't even get to like, and even when you live in like, say in Hoover, 
it's a 45 minute walk to the bus. The bus ain't going all through the white neighborhood. It's going to the edge of the white neighborhood. And you meet me back here if you want to go back to the black side of town. So how do you when we talk about the legislation of this, how do you prove that? Because this is this is the type of this is that shifty gelatinous type of racism. This isn't as concrete this is one that people could go well you know funding we can't take the bus out that way how do we create better legislation to undo all of this professor or can that even be done i I would like to speak to that situation that you described because that's exactly the the situation we see around the country where we have um particularly around buses which are disproportionately used by people of color uh, buses that only get you to the edge of the white community, but won't take you far into the white community. Buses that stop running at a certain hour. Um, White communities around the country have resisted having bus stops in their communities because they don't, they'll say, we don't want crime. Well, we all know what they mean when they say we don't want crime. Um, Mm -hmm. they, They stop buses early. And as we see more jobs move from inner cities and um, and cities into the suburban rings, it makes it difficult for people to access economic opportunity to be able to get to work. Um, I spoke with someone who um, lives in uh, Michigan and takes a bus to their job at the mall, but the bus only gets them far enough where after that they have to get off and walk two miles um, to get to their job at the mall. There's a story of a woman in upstate New York the bus could not go into the, the parking lot of the mall. It couldn't get you all the way to the mall. The bus could only drop you off on the black side of the highway. And then she had to try to traverse the highway to get to work. And Come she was hit now. by a car and she died. Um, and so we have to push back against the way that white communities are denying access um, based on um, public transportation when we know what that is about. The challenge with our laws is that they don't get at that kind of um, amorphous discrimination that you talked about. They don't get at impact. We have a legal system that is firmly grounded in challenging instances where there are there's proof, hard proof. Someone calls you the N-word. Someone says we don't want black people. And that just doesn't work um, with the kind of racism that we are challenging and experiencing today. It doesn't help us. Um, get at these deeply entrenched inequality that's in our system that can be invisible uh, to people if you take a quick look. And it's wild to go from, you sit in the back of the bus to, all right, we're just gonna get rid of the bus. Pretty much, pretty much. I, I, oh, I can tell you like that, that has always been one of the biggest issues that I've had, you know, and I love, you know, I love Birmingham, it's home, but mass transportation has always been a hurdle it is and it remains a hurdle to this day randall when you all are assembling these stories who decides when it's time to put the pencil down because this is a deep rabbit hole like because like honestly you could get into transportation but then and we'll get to you in a second on this professor you could get into how transportation intersects with housing inequity and education inequity and all of those policies all working in concert to create the racism gumbo that i like to call or you know etouffee whatever you prefer randall um when do you all make the decision to finally put the pencils down and go, okay, this is all we can cover on this topic? I mean, it is difficult because there is a bunch of stuff in the gumbo, as you say, but you know, same with gumbo, you can only eat so much before you're about to just pass out and get the itis. So <laughs> you, you, you kind of, it's kind of like a feeling 
And it's also mixed with, luckily, time itself is a little bit of a limiter because the segment has to come out eventually. And since we wanted to tie it to the infrastructure bill, it's like, all right, well, this segment has to get out before that bill uh, either passes or fails. So it's a mix of just intuition, but also the context around whatever the segment is. Professor, to that point of so many different things working in concert, you know, when we talk about, you know, these different factors from housing to education policy, in addition to transportation, impacting black communities, access to opportunity, like how do you decide which part of the problem to attack first? Because, you know, we're talking federal housing mandates, local housing policies. You've got public education systems, employment discrimination. You've got crooked banks not loaning your money to get the house to help rebuild the hood. And you have the highway system. Are these issues that can be tackled one by one or do they all have to be taken down at the same time? Definitely not one by one. All at the same time, we have to have a concerted effort to, to tear apart all these systems, all these systems of oppression, all these systems of inequality. They feed each other. Um, they drive each other. And so we have to really work on attacking all at the same time. Often, transportation is forgotten about in that conversation. We talk about criminal legal system reform, housing, voting, um, economic opportunity. We forget about transportation, but transportation is far more than a means of just moving people back and forth. Transportation systems uh, shape who gets to feel like they belong, who gets to enjoy access to opportunity, who gets to live with safety and dignity. Transportation infrastructure is the infrastructure of equitable education, of good health, of economic opportunity, and really of a vibrant democracy. We are talking about fixing um, our democratic process and challenging the ways that we are making it harder for uh, black people and other people of color to vote. One example um, that we've seen is the closing of polling places. So a, a black community used to have 12 polling places and now legislation passes and there's one polling place there. One of the reasons why that's a challenge is because of transportation. People have no way to get to that one polling place. Um, so it's all inter interconnected. And I'm glad that transportation and infrastructure is really now a part of the conversation about civil rights and racial equality. On the other side of the coin, though, is there or was there a degree of freedom that black people felt from having the interstates and going fine? You don't, the bus is tripping. Well, cool. I was finally able to afford a car. Now I can drive and get to everywhere I want to go. Absolutely. It certainly offered some measure of freedom where black people didn't have to deal with segregate the, the back of the bus and segregated buses. They didn't have to wait in segregated um, waiting rooms. Uh, but black car ownership and driving on the interstate opened up a whole new body of discrimination uh, targeting black people. Um, I, I mentioned driving while black and the need for the green book because black people often did not arrive at their destination safely because they didn't know what communities were safe to stop in, where they could stop to get gas, where it was going to be safe um, to uh, stop at a hotel. And so there were dangers that opened up with the, with the freeway. And so, yeah, it certainly had so many positives. Absolutely. But a lot of challenges. So we got to attack this issue and all these problems at the same time concurrently, like Independence Day, Randall. <laughs> you can't just take thought, that in. 
Yeah. I never even thought of that. Like, that is one of my favorite things about uh, riding the subway or the bus is like, look, I can't get pulled over right now. I say that, but I actually have been on a bus that's been pulled over, so now that's kind of taken. I I don't know how they do it. These are some of the most inventive police officers of all time. (laughs) Hey, to close everything off, let's bring back the episode Karen Demick. I sat with Daily Show correspondent Dulce Sloan and Daily Show writer Josh Johnson, and we talked about how white people wrongfully calling the cops on black people impacts children and actual women named Karen. It's not fair to them either. Play the clip. I think that there is hope in terms of how we carry ourselves as a society, and I think that pieces like this do affect change. There was a story out of, I believe this was San Francisco, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, San Francisco. So black guy waiting in front of a building, one of them buildings where you got to be buzzed in and call upstairs for the motherfucker to come down to get you. Yeah. Black guy in front of the building waiting for his friend to come down to get him. White man and his son come out the building. White man turns to black guy and goes, why are you standing in front of my building? Black guy goes, I don't have to answer to you. White guy calls the police. White guy goes through the usual. I'm looking at him. He appears to be African-American. Here's our address. The man's son, who doesn't appear to be more than seven or eight years old, starts crying and is begging to the father to let this shit slide. He ain't bother nobody. He's just standing in front of a building. There's a trespasser in my building. Daddy, go. Leave and, uh, go. Listen to your son. Daddy, go. It's the best. better. I, I agree with him, kid begged and begged his father and his father refused to get off the phone with the cops and then the friend from upstairs appeared and the black guy entered the building and the father had that look that josh was talking about on his face in the Uh video where oh no what have i done oh no that kid gives me hope well but in that moment as a parent your elementary school age child is one recognizing the situation and it has, and is recognizing the situation more as, than you are as a grown ass man, right? Your child mm-hmm. also has the wherewithal and the knowledge of the situation to ask you to not do what you are doing. Now, in this moment, when you're continuing to do what you are doing, what are you teaching your child? Are you teaching your child that my authority comes before anything? Are you teaching him how to be a white man? Like, what are you, what is in the, in that moment when your child is telling you to stop, what are you trying to teach in that moment? Because you didn't stop. Well, whatever the lesson is, the kid didn't get it. Thankfully, this gotta be one of them dudes that's just got joint custody. This can't be no regular dad. This ain't regular daddy behavior. Why like you any think daddy don't li- daddy behavior? Any daddy that don't listen to his kid, that's joint custody. Shut up, little motherfucker. You don't know anyway. Police, yes. Mm-hmm. Listen, you know what? The Lord has not blessed me with a child yet. So, and I don't plan to be in any joint custody situation. We made these niggas. We're going to raise them together. Because um, 
It's joint custody because he knows he ain't got to deal with that kid all in his face the rest of the night. Daddy called the police on a black man. He finna go drop him off at his side chick house and get on back to work. <laughs> wow. I mean, that's okay, a I very didn't... specific take. But yeah, I mean, I, I, I can see it. The way you I described it sounds reasonable, but oof. <laughs> My point is, it gives me hope. And this is, here's another statistic that gives me hope. In 2020 in the United States... There were only just over 300 baby girls named Karen out of all of the names of all of the babies. I don't know the percentage on that, but that's got to be less than one percent of all. What babies. Was the so, percent, so what was the percentage the year before then? Can you I want to know how much dropped for one second. Can you just. No, no, no I just want to see the. Per- I'm trying to be positive. I'm being positive. I want to see Can the percentage of how being it dropped. analytical for one second. <laughs> I want it. I like facts and figures. I do know that there are non-white Karens. I almost said white. There are non-white Karens who they also feel like that they have been, you know, discriminated against. But I'm just like, but you the one they would call. Because like if there's a white woman Karen and, and they're calling the police on a black Karen, and does this black Karen go, hey, bitch, I'm a Karen. You can't call the cops on me. I'm you. Okay, here's your, here's your number since you We're won the statistic. Here's your, here's your fucking statistic. The overall number of new babies named Karen in 2019 was 439. In 2020, okay. it dropped to 325, a decline of nearly 26%. See, I don't know why you had to put it that way, but now, see, and now people got something they can attach it to, you know? So all of these heifers acting a fool done made people stop naming it, their daughters Karen or sons, I don't know their business, uh, and it reduced by 26%. Here's the thing that's really telling about that statistic, just by for comparison's sake. In 1965, when Karen was peak popularity, 33,000 people were given that name. And when you look at the age of the people that are misbehaving and compare it to 1965, kind of lines up. Because they'd be in their 50s. Yes. Yeah. They'd be in their 50s. It does also feel like it just is aging out completely independent of the Karendemic. I I feel how many Gladyses do you know? Ain't no yeah, Gladys's, I mean, ain't no new Clementines, ain't nobody getting named Vera. Yeah, it might just be Vera's one of Veronica. those names that's phasing out. I don't know if we can chalk that up to racial justice. I think that that just might be uh, <laughs> people with new tastes. Because what okay. you can do, so, so Google how many women were named Ashley in 1965 because, or Jennifer, because we had so many Jennifers at my high school, we were all referred to them by the last name. So... Maybe Josh is right. Maybe it's just the tip in the scales. And, the, and so in 20 years, we won't have Karens. We're going to have Ashley's and Jennifer's. Well, the most popular baby name in 2020 was Olivia. So does this mean in about 50 years, there's going to be a wave of racist Olivia's? I mean, maybe. But this is my thing. I think that just like the kid that gives you hope, A lot of the people coming up now, not just because they have only ever lived with the Internet, but because they actually can can see like through other people's mistakes rapidly on the Internet. I think Mm -hmm. that like a good portion of the way that we 
see things happening now is either going to shift or chill because it never goes away. It's not it's, it's not about going away, but I think racist people are going to find a, a new thing. And I think that the the people who might have leaned on that side of the fence might, you know, be like, eh, it's not worth that. It's not it's not worth me potentially losing my job for harassing a resident of this building that is my neighbor, but I don't talk to my neighbor. So I have no idea. It's like, I think that that thing is also going to wane a bit because even if, you know, it's a small price to pay overall that like your name is the name that people are clowning for the past like two (laughs) years. It's like, all right, that you really shouldn't have said anything. It's to me, the people that like, complain about Karen being like the Chester thing, like that really complain about that. It's just like you sound weak. Like 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 tell me about a real problem. I believe you have real problems. Every single Karen, whatever that that is like, oh when you say Karen hurt my feelings, any of that, I believe you have real other problems because you're human on planet Earth. But not this one. Don't this this makes you look like if your cereal in stock is over for you, like it, it's just, it's such a non thing. Or, or they are living up to the moniker that was given to them because what is being a Karen, you know, weaponizing victimhood, weaponizing white privilege. So if you were some complaining about, Oh, they're calling people Karens and now it's coming back on me. It's victimhood. It's all it is. Well, I didn't do, I don't know why everybody's so mad at me. I didn't even do anything. Yeah. And neither did any other black person born as a fucking black person, but I'm always going to have problems because y'all have decided that I'm lesser than that. I'm a fucking problem that you feel the need to ask me what the fuck I'm doing. If I'm standing in front of a building, what are you doing? What are you doing? Deal with it. No one's fucking trying to send you. No one's trying to mass incarcerate you. No one's trying to not give you a fucking home loan. There's too many things that black people have gone through for me to have any sympathy for some bitch sitting up whining about the fact that people are, they're making me into a meme. The police are killing us because you call them. Fuck a meme. Get off the internet. Like all of this is just like, I am not, as a black woman, I'm not allowed to play victim ever, ever. I have to be strong to my detriment as a human being. So to come up to me and complain or to be on the internet and complain that people are being mean to you because of your name. If I marry a black man, he could die today. I could die. If I have black children, my brother, every black man around me, every black person around me is at constant fucking danger anytime the cops roll by. And then I still have to deal with every white person that walks in nature. I don't know what side they're on. Also, White people aren't the only ones calling the police on us. There are also other non-black people, non-black people of color also calling the fucking cops on us. So it's a free for all. Everybody knows that if you want to control a black person, you could threaten them by calling the fucking police. And you want to complain to me that people are being mean to you? Bitch, fall downstairs. Stop it. You sound wild. And the, the whole Karen thing, it's yes, it's a whiny white woman. Who the hell wants to, it's hysterics and it's all, you know, that's something, it's like, oh, well, you know, she's being hysterical. She's being, you know, think about the term, the term hysterical comes from a feminine root because there's also the term 
hysterectomy. Like, you see what I'm saying? Like the root of this is female. You're saying that this is something that's inherently in women is us acting a fucking fool. And if anyone has been prone to be like white women are the most protected because they're seen as the weakest and they're seen as the weakest because they're the most protected. No one's saying the phrase strong white woman. That doesn't happen. No one's looking to a white woman for advice. No one's stopping a white woman in a bathroom to tell them all their problems. It's not happening. You look to me for that goofy shit. You look to a white woman for a Yelp review. I look to Rachel Rayford for recipes sometimes, though. Do you? Because that food looked dry. Racism in America takes on many forms, and it goes beyond discussions we have on this podcast. Shout out to our wonderful guests for educating us and contributing to these important conversations. I hope you all enjoyed going further beyond the scenes, and we are back with new episodes next week. The summer break is over, and we're back in the saddle. But I promise the, the first episode back won't be racism. You took this episode like a champ. So be sure to listen to The Daily Show Beyond the Scenes on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. Don't forget to pack the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies for a post-lunch pick-me-up. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as life continues to fly by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024.